Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, September 24th, 2017, on the basis of Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. The heart wants what it wants. You've maybe heard that expression before. It's an expression that indicates that sometimes we desire things for reasons that are independent of, maybe even contrary to, logical explanation. That purchase that deep down we knew we couldn't afford. That person that we got involved with romantically that deep down we knew was all wrong for us. I'm guessing that all of us can look back at bad decisions that we've made and simply shrug, well, the heart wants what it wants. Well, one of the things that the heart wants most is what we're talking about today. The heart wants to hold on. Namely, when someone wrongs us, when someone hurts us, when someone betrays us or stabs us in the back, when someone takes advantage of us or takes our possessions, the heart wants to hold on. The heart wants to stay angry. The heart wants to hold a grudge. The heart even wants to seek revenge. In fact, Christian author Frederick Beekner put it in a very startling way. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last morsel the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. So often we we find that the heart just wants to hold on, right? Well, when that's the case, when the heart wants to hold on, really what the heart wants is poison. In fact, there aren't many things in all the world that are worse for us than holding on to sins, holding on to anger, bitterness, and resentment. You've maybe heard the old expression that holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. And so thankfully, as we take one more look at at one of these episodes in the life of Jesus, when he had pulled back, when he had retreated and withdrawn from public life to teach his disciples important lessons, one of those lessons was about this very thing. The lesson was occasioned by Peter's question. You heard it read earlier. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven? Jesus said, no, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. As I've mentioned already a couple of times, the the picture behind that biblical word of forgiveness is to let go. To take the wrong that someone else has committed against us and not hold on to it, but to let go of it. And Jesus wanted Peter to know, he wants us to know, that when it comes to letting go, there is no limit. Not seven, not 77. We simply do it as many times as necessary. And Jesus would go on to say he wants us to do that from the heart, not reluctantly or begrudgingly, but willingly and gladly let go. So how do we do that? How do we take the heart that wants what it wants and teach it to want something else? I'm guessing you've heard a a variety of cliches and expressions that talk about this topic of forgiveness and offer solutions. Expressions like forgive and forget. 
expressions like time heals all wounds. Do you notice the common thread between those two expressions? In both cases, they are saying the solution to holding on to sin is to distance yourself from the reality of the situation, to disconnect yourself from what actually happened. And sure, there are probably times, there are probably examples where that kind of thing works perfectly fine. And yet I'm guessing that maybe there is a time in your life, something that someone else did to you, where the hurt is so deep, where the pain is so sharp, that you can't forget. And that no matter how much time passes, the wound still is not healed. And so thankfully, as we look at Jesus' words today, we're going to see a very different sort of solution. Jesus is going to tell us and give us a basis for forgiveness that is not distancing ourselves from reality, but really by immersing ourselves in it. Jesus wants us to carefully calculate. He wants us to meticulously measure the wrongs that have been committed against us. Jesus' solution for a heart that just so desperately wants to hold on is to help us fully analyze the cold, hard facts of forgiveness. To illustrate those facts, you, you heard that Jesus told a parable. He told a story about a man. And what's interesting about this story is that it starts out not with the man forgiving someone. It starts out with the man being forgiven. Apparently, this man was some sort of administrator, some sort of governor for a very wealthy king. A great deal of the king's wealth had been entrusted to his oversight, only this man had mismanaged it colossally. We're told that he owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. The Greek word there is the word talent. 10,000 talents. A talent is a unit of weight or a unit of measurement. So people have tried to put in today's terms how much this servant owed. Some people say it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Some people say it's in the billions of dollars. But realize that in Jesus' day, first of all, the talent was the largest unit of weight, unit of measurement that they used, and 10,000 was the largest number that they used. And so it's just as likely that Jesus is simply saying this, this debt was impossibly big. It'd be like if we say he owed the man a jillion dollars impossible to pay off. But notice what the man does. The man comes to the king and begs. He says, please be patient with me, and I promise I will pay back every penny. What a ridiculous plan. Not only would five lifetimes not have been enough for this man to pay back the debt, but when you are that far in debt, more time is not your friend. More time is the enemy. More time means that the interest keeps piling up and you get further and further and further into debt. This man's plan was utterly ridiculous. And so what does the king do? Well, in an astonishing act of mercy, the king simply cancels the debt. Not lower interest rates, not extended terms, not I'll collect 10 cents on the dollar. He just cancels it and lets the man go. So what is that part of the story have to do with us forgiving other people? Why does Jesus start out with the man not forgiving, but being forgiven? Well, Jesus realizes that as much as the heart often wants to hold on to the wrongs that have been committed against us, even more than that, the heart wants something else. See, deep down, each one of us knows that we too have, have racked up our own debt before the king, before our God. Each and every one of our sins is adding to that insurmountable debt. And deep, deep down, we want nothing more than to settle that score ourselves, 
to settle that account ourselves, to pay the king back ourselves. And in our desperate desire to do that, we will reach out and grab onto anything that we can get our hands on. See, God, I, I went to church today. Look at that. Look at what I've got. See, God, I, I was a faithful employee for my boss this week at work. See, see, look at what I have. See, God, I, I said some nice things to my spouse this week. I, I helped my kids with their homework. Look, look, God, look at what I did. And yes, see, God, look at this sin that this other person has committed. Look at this wrong they have done against me. I know I'm not a perfect person, but I'm not as bad as them. Look at this, God. It's one of the things that makes anger so desirable. It's because when we are angry with someone, when we are holding a grudge, it makes us feel superior to them. It makes us feel self-righteous. There is a direct line between our desire to hold on to the sins of others and our desire to pay back our debt before God ourselves. And so that's why Jesus helps us fully analyze the cold, hard facts about forgiveness. Jesus wants us to see that our debt before God is unpayable, insurmountable. Even all of eternity would not be enough time for us to pay back our debt to God. Coming up with a plan for doing so would be as ridiculous as the man who came, back, came up with this plan for paying back the jillion dollars that he owed the king. Those are simply the cold, hard facts. But Jesus also wants us to know that, that what happened to that man is exactly what happened to us. In astonishing mercy, the king simply decided to cancel the debt entirely, which means, of course, that he took the loss himself, right? You cancel the debt that someone else owes you. Who's losing out in that transaction? You are. So Jesus took our debt. He took, I'm sorry, God took our debt and the whole world's debt, and he took the loss on himself by sending his son Jesus to pay it in full. And with his death on the cross, Jesus paid every last penny of our debt, and with his resurrection from the grave, God himself handed us the receipt. You owe nothing. Nothing more needs to be added. Nothing more needs to be given. Those are simply the cold, hard facts. So what does that have to do with us forgiving other people? Well, that's what the second half of the parable is about, right? You heard the story about this servant. He went out from this conversation with the king, and what did he do? He went out and he found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred silver coins. The Greek word there is the word denarius, which was a day's wage. So a hundred days wages, let's just say $20,000. Notice how his fellow servant made exactly the same plea as he had made before the king. He said, please just give me more time and I will pay it back. And that actually was possible in this case. He could have done it. But what does the first servant do? He has no pity on him. He throws him in prison until he can pay it back. What makes the behavior of that servant so wrong? Well, we look at the story and, and we think to ourselves, surely someone who had, who had that kind of debt canceled should have gone out and done the same thing for other people, right? I mean, what do you do when someone who is in front of you in the drive-thru at Starbucks pays for your drink? You do the very same thing for the person who's behind you, right? You, you pay it forward. So surely this man should have done the same for his fellow servant. I suppose that's true. But really, there's more to it than that. You see, this entire story is about the settling of accounts. And if this servant 
had opened his books, looked at his account at the very beginning of the day, he would have noticed that in the assets column, he had this debt, this $20,000 debt from his fellow servant. But over in the liabilities column, he had this jillion dollar debt that he owed the king. Realize that those are not independent, disconnected things. Those are part of the same account. Those are part of the same financial picture. And so if this second servant had actually paid him back his $20,000, it's not like he had spending cash on his hand all of a sudden to go out and buy a car or whatever else he wanted. No, it's that now he owed the king a jillion dollars minus 20000 They are part of the same financial picture. The debt that this other servant owed him was really, first and foremost, a debt owed to the king. Well, the king had, had canceled the debt, right? The king had wiped the books clean. In fact, the king had closed the books on a system where people would be getting what they deserved. He closed the books on a system of merit and replaced it with a system of mercy instead. And so really what this servant was doing in holding this debt against his fellow servant, he was saying, you know what, why why don't we open those books back up? How does our forgiveness before God impact our forgiveness of others? In the very same way. We can't think as though our, our debt that other people owe us is somehow independent of the debt that we owe God. Jesus wants us to analyze the cold, hard facts. He says when someone commits a sin against you, don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Don't forget about it. Go ahead and put a number on it. Jesus puts a number on it. But realize that that is not some independent thing from the debt that you owe God. It is part of the same financial picture. The sins that other people commit against us really are debts owed to God even before they are debts owed to us. But then God comes along and he wipes the books clean. He closes the books on a system of merit where people get what they deserve, where people settle their own accounts, and he replaces it with a system of mercy instead. And so when we decide that we're going to hold against our brothers and sisters the sins they've committed against us, we are in fact saying, let's open those books back up. Let's go back to the system where people get what they deserve, where people have to settle their own accounts. And that is a scary, scary thing because we know exactly what those books say. That's why the king responds the way that he does. It said, in his anger... The king said to the servant, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Friends, holding our brothers and sisters sins against them is like opening back up those books. It puts us outside of God's mercy and puts us under the obligation of settling our own account with God. We might think that we are putting the other person in prison, but really the person being imprisoned is us. And did you notice that every second spent in that prison for that servant was pure torture? That's the cruel, twisted irony of anger. It seems so fun. It seems so desirable that we should feel self-righteous and superior to other people. And yet, you know that if you've ever struggled with anger, it makes your life miserable. It is pure torture every single second. I showed you that quotation from Frederick Beekner about anger. Here's how it ended. He said, in many ways, anger is a feast fit for a king, the chief drawback. 
is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Friends, this is what our Savior Jesus wants to set us free from. Not by telling us just to ignore the facts, but really leading us to fully analyze those cold, hard facts. In fact, he wants those to be in front of us each and every day as we open the scriptures and see again and again, page after page, how God is reminding us that our debt has been paid in full. And as if that isn't enough, he then goes an extra measure and he himself prepares a feast for us of his own making. Far better than the feast of anger that we so often desire, he prepares a feast where the cold hard facts are these. That the priceless treasure that Jesus used to pay for our sins with his death on the cross, his body and blood, are given to us to eat and drink in bread and wine. Jesus wants those cold, hard facts of our forgiveness to be in front of us each and every day, not only because they are the cold, hard facts that are central to our salvation, but because they take those hard hearts, hearts that so often want to hold on, and they melt them down. They turn them into hearts that want to, even love to, let go. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.